Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. Something slightly different on soundtracking in partnership with the EE BAFTAs this week as we bring you an edited version of a live interview I did with Lynn Ramsey at the Glasgow Film Festival. Now, Lynn really is one of my favourite directors, so it was an absolute honour to get her on stage in front of an audience at the Glasgow Film Theatre, Screen 2. Her latest film, You Were Never Really Here, has garnered five-star review after five-star review. It stars Joaquin Phoenix and is scored by Radiohead's Johnny Greenwood. Now, we'll hear plenty of Johnny's work throughout the course of the conversation, as well as cues from We Need to Talk About Kevin, Morvan Caller and Ratcatcher. But for reasons which will become clear, we start with Richard James, a.k.a. Aphex Twin, and his track, Rhubarb. I've been such a massive fan of Lynn Ramsey's. My friend introduced me to Ratcatcher many years ago. And then Morvan Kyler was a film that, I come from a little fishing village, so I really connected with it. And I very much saw a lot of me in that character, although I didn't have a dead boyfriend in my flat at the time. Um, with every film that she releases, I just get more and more excited about what we're going to see next. And it's an absolute privilege and pleasure to welcome Lynn Ramsey to Soundtracking. How was how was your your Glasgow premiere last night of your new film? I think it was like my family were mostly there, you know. And then probably all my aunties, their favourite film is Mamma Mia, so I don't know how this went down. <laughs> well, congratulations, because it is absolutely wonderful. And I love that you've described it as a kind of punk rock film. Just, I think, and that kind of refers to how it was made as well, in terms of it was this wonderful, exciting journey that was kind of bookended by Cannes as well, if that's right. The idea was sold at Cannes, and then a year later, you were shown at Cannes. Yeah, yeah, what an amazing right. journey. Well, when you say that I think shambolic musicians who get on stage and can't really play their instruments properly the punk rock style but no it, it was pretty crazy there was no way I would imagine that I, I mean I hadn't even finished the script to be honest and and there was no way I thought it'd be ready in time and I'd and it wasn't ready you know um, but the French uh, producers were super keen and can and they liked it and I mean it's a real privilege to be asked but I was like please no like <laughs> because I you know a film's ready when it's ready but it worked out. And this journey that you've been on with Joaquin Phoenix you know talking about writing scripts as you're filming and you're, as you're shooting you're giving him this freedom to improvise as well to kind of bring this character to life and that feels like the real heart of this experience in this film would you agree? Yeah I mean I got to New York and I had to cut 20 pages out of the script in a six week prep you know or seven week prep there was no soft prep 
I don't think I slept the whole time, which is why it's probably a bit of a kind of hallucination in a way. But he came really early. He came when the crew came, two days after I came. And to be honest, I was absolutely terrified. A, I'd never met him. I'd only spoke to him on the phone. He said he understood about 50% or less of what I was saying, you know. <laughs> and, and then I'm like, what the hell am I? I've got all these locations to find. And I don't, you know, like, this is totally crazy. Like, how am I going to even have time to spend with him? Um, but the fact that he came so early was amazing. And we ended up by chance living around the corner from each other in Brooklyn. So I think the first thing that happened was he met the prop master. I don't think I was there. I think I was looking at locations and stuff. This was this lovely young guy in his 20s, Matt Marks, who was a great prop guy. But um, there was some things in the skip that were still a bit like the book and there was gadgets like a phone jammer and things like that. And so the poor guys left with Joaquin and Joaquin was like, this is bullshit, this is bullshit, this is bullshit. <laughs> and I remember meeting him after this meeting and he was shaking and... And, and Wacky was right, all that stuff that was like the kind of props from these normal things. I mean, I'd done a quite a bit of work in the skips and I probably thought, oh, that's quite cool still, you know. But no, it was bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> Your bullshit detector on set, I love it. Did you discuss music at all with him? Well, I played him some music, I shot some stuff. I really love that track, Rhubarb by Aphex Twin. But it's one of those tracks that's so absolutely gorgeous that I don't think I've ever seen it work with an image, you know. Like, it's almost its own thing. Sometimes, like, books are like that, they're just like not filmable and they're better in that format but I've been trying to use that track forever so <laughs> he'd never heard that and so I put it together with some stuff I'd shot and it was really mesmeric. regular thing through all your films is a sensual experience that you get with them in terms of the way that you use you know you talk about your sound designers and if there's elements of it that are minimal with the script the sound and the music are really important they're characters in all of your films for you at what point do you like to start talking to your composer or your music supervisor about the music and that sort of soundscape to the films I think as early as possible and I think if anyone's a writer or filmmaker here like I think it's important to like start thinking about that soundscape in the script with this, it was coming off the character. You were like, what, what goes on in his head? You know, sometimes it's, it's good to imagine, like, you know, put yourself psychologically in that person's space. And I guess I was doing that in my own way. 
when I got to New York. Um, but also I did it in the script. I was I thought a lot about sound. And I, that came from Kevin, really, where it was basically a production company who, I think they did Twilight. And they're a good company, but they got a hold of the script. And I don't know how they got a hold of the script to Kevin. And I was like, how did you get this? And like, we really want you to do it. And um, we'll give you this amount of money. And it doesn't need any big actors. And it all sounded too good to be true, you know. But my dad was dying at the time, so I was kind of distracted. And I went and he prepped with that. And then it all fell through. So I could only make it for half the budget. So the actual script was edited on paper, a lot of it. It was like, and it goes to here, to here, to here. It was like a puzzle, you know. And the sound goes to this, to this, to this. But I worked with a brilliant editor called Joe Beanie as well, who's done a lot of work with Herzog. But that being so kind of almost forensic in a way, like, it made me think about sound a lot because it's the sound of the sprinklers in Kevin, you know, and it's a really ominous sound. And it's kind of amazing to make a sprinkler, which is an everyday object, become this kind of motif. Because Eva's character in that film, that sound represents something horrific to her, you know. Mm. The wonderful thing about um, You Were Never Really Here is this, you know, we're introduced to Joe and you make assumptions as to who he is and what he is and then it's almost like a Western when it starts. Yeah. That kind of, it's like a kind of, you know, yeah. you can, the way he's walking and he's got that and yeah. you think it's going to kind of go Western yeah, and then yeah. it's got this yeah. just kind of distortedness to it. Yeah. Brilliant. I mean, I think it's sort of like what you, Johnny really nailed was the kind of idea of this kind of, who the hell is this guy? Mm-hmm. The whole feel of that kind of like, um, I guess just this kind of soundscape that almost sounds like sound design as well. But then when it kicks in, it lifts to something else. it suited the film's kind of B-movie nature in a way, but it starts in a way where you're like, who is this, what is this? And I think he nailed that really well. Then it goes into somewhere where you feel it's like, oh yeah, I get it, it's a genre movie. And then it goes somewhere completely, you know, nuts, you know? like A bit like this character, you know? Like, a bit like Joaquin, where you, you never you know what to expect, what's going to happen next.
done a lot of this remotely, which I've never done because Kevin, I was in the radio head studio quite a lot. But he was in tour and, you know, I didn't know if he could do it and stuff, but we were trying to make it work. Um, but I was kind of reeling him in a bit by saying, here's the first five minutes, you know, here's <laughs> the first ten minutes. And when the time we got to rule four, where the film goes completely bonkers, he's like, oh my God, you know what I mean? I love reel four, you know? And so, um, so it was kind of like him getting to know the characters mm -hmm. and going along, even though he'd read the script, because things had changed yeah. and, you know, um, so that worked out pretty well. He doesn't score to picture, he scores to a lot of mood or feeling. Oh wow. So he would give us like 20 minute pieces and then I would choose something and that's the one we chose. Then we would alter the cut to the music so that it was time to that cut, you know. As yeah. opposed to, yeah. to kind of... Yeah, like normally a composer will get the cut, mm -hmm. they time their music to your cut. This was the kind of opposite way yeah. around, but also it was like... It was like a soundscape you were getting, you were trying to fit the pieces of where the best parts for whatever that was. And, yeah. stuff. and you know, so that that was super exciting as well. I mean, we would, Joe Beanie and I would get music from Johnny and be like, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. And then it was just like, you know, there was no budget on them, you, you know, it became a quite a big score and like we probably had more money than Kevin, even though that was a sort of back, uh, you know, more like kind of like sound design yeah. kind of the music almost, you know what I mean? Or underscore, what they call it. Um, so, so that was super exciting, like, because um, the film was kind of evolving as the music was evolving. So, I, actually, with the sound, the music were always really early on. very conventional ways that you, it's like oh we'll do the sound later you know um, or let's take the music on at the end or we'll get the music supervisor we won't hire them until whatever two weeks before the mix you know um, and so I don't work like that and then it can that can be quite hard to explain to people you know um, so but luckily I you know and sometimes it was like why are we doing you know we're getting the sound designer so early but the way I wanted to work it was like do visual cut then do and then take that cut, work in the sound, bring the, the new sound into the next cut so they inform each other. Because often the sound like, really changes the cut, you know. If anyone's ever been, you know, when you do a, a rough cut when it's not mixed, you know what I mean? Then you see a film with a mix, it's just like it's like night and day, you know. So um, knowing that, we were trying to get into that process really early.
because that performance from Joaquim is incredible mm. and, and having everything else match that and it's really interesting you talking about cutting the scene then to fit the music and stuff but yeah. do you think that Johnny may very much took that performance as inspiration for what uh, yeah. he then went on to write? I think this is Johnny's interpretation of, uh, of Joel as a character and then also some of the atmospherics of the film and the tones like so that's the second layer. Joaquin punches this drug dealer and I didn't know he was going to do that. That was like the first, he was a guy who was an extra, you know, for real, you know. <laughs> he was in character, so, you know, you know, it was like, what the hell is he going to do next? And like, I, I think once that there was a trust established between us two, you know, he was a really good extra, by the way, sorry. <laughs> um, another guy, the gunman, when, he, when they're singing to the, the, the song, is like, he get pretty beaten up too, and, like, and we had a B camera on that guy. But the B camera operator was terrible, and he, he kept like filming this dripping tap on the sink, and I'm like, move the camera, move the camera, because <laughs> the poor guy's getting, you know, was really getting a walloping. But but they were all really up for it, you know. Um, so I think that Johnny's music kind of had that thing where it was ex unexpected turns, like you know, you wouldn't normally go that direction, yeah. and then just kind of like go obliquely the other way, you know. What yeah. I mean? So it's, it was fun doing that. Yeah. exciting for you that kind of unknown there's a trust like you say but also yeah. just waiting to see what what he's going to do for a particular scene and where he's going to take it yeah, yeah it was I mean it was such a short ed edit this film as well but when he's really great and this is I think what makes him one of the best actors in the world as well as really coming that early a lot of people will show up a couple of days before or the day before or that you know yeah it's like there's a huge commitment we wanted black humor to be in it we talked about that we don't we didn't want it to be one no we didn't want him to be this kind of cut guy we wanted to be like have his belly and like he started physically 
physically change and the way you walked and that was really exciting because it was like the options you have in a cut then. I mean we could have made Harold and Maud just a film with him and his mum in this, oh, you know. Oh, she's amazing. You know, oh. I, well, you know, she and she's in her 80s. I think she was at that point in her life where she really didn't give a shit, you know, like I'm just really enjoying myself, so that was so much fun. And she's just been nominated for the National, for the Sport and Art Actress for the National Film Awards or something, and that totally made her day, made my year, because I was like, how cool is that for her, you know? And when you're left with that kind of material, there's many different routes you can go. You can go funny, terrifying, tender, you know, and he gave me that. Even the psycho thing, you know, reference kind of, that was just ask, ask my mum what she's like, What's the Turner Classics movie, TCM or whatever, and, and she always turns it up really loud, even though she's not deaf. <laughs> so I was like, I was thinking to my mum when I was, you know, we were doing that scene, and I was talking about to Judith about those movies. She knows all those movies, like you know, and um, she told me a couple I didn't know, and I'm like, I've got to see that, and she's like, okay, we'll do something, and she just said I'm watching Psycho, and then he did. And then we did it again, and it just was an improvisation. It was a first take, and I was like, right, okay, we've got it. And I was wondering why people were going, don't use that take later. And it was like, maybe it was producers, you know. Sorry, you know, to anyone, but that I'm talking about. <laughs> but it was because it was fifteen thousand dollars to use. No. And we used it twice, and so that was thirty thousand dollars. You know, I was like, my God, it's ridiculous, you know. So anyway. The closing music is brilliant. Mm. I, mean, I know that they are, and it's getting released as a, a score, that, that, which mm. is which is absolutely brilliant. Was that a case of that was just what, one of the pieces of music that mm. that Johnny sent you, and it just felt the right thing to? Yeah, yeah. I mean, he sent me especially for that piece. Yeah. I mean, we might have had some. I think maybe tried to tempt things just to get a, a, a flavour, you know. Yeah. Um, you know, we were knocked out and. That was another one where Joe and I, the editor, kind of maybe lay on the floor and stared at the ceiling and thanked her lucky stars and just were wiped out. But you know when you just hear something you're just like, oh my God, this is phenomenal. And um, it gave us a piece of music. We knew what section it was for. Mm. But it wasn't like we, you know, this, and once we had that music, then that dictated the length of that, that whole piece. Yeah. yeah.
did you and Johnny start working together, Johnny Gray? Because Kevin was your first project together. How did that relationship start? I don't know. I think I must have somehow been able to get his manager's email or something. Sent him a cut of Kevin, so it wasn't a script from the script or mm. anything like that. And also sent one uh, to Richard James, you know, um, like, so I love you, fixed one too, and stuff like that. And um, and Johnny just got back within a few hours, like, of watching it and just was like, I don't know what you've made, it scares the shit out of me, but I love it. And so we started working, and then Richard James was really, he was interested, I've emailed a few times as well, but I think I, I probably put him off by saying, oh, I need a piece for that, that and that, and he's probably thinking, no, no wage, and I mean, he does his own thing, you know, like, that's too much. But, but no, our relationship really sort of started then, and um, then we met each other, and like, I went to the studio, it was like, started mm -hmm. from there, and um. He probably thinks I'm nuts in some ways because I was like, why do we? We'll do a remix. We'll do f four composers and mix it this way. I was like, for these, you know, bonkers ideas. And he was really busy, but I was like, in the end, I was just like, I just, I, I really wanted him to do it. You mm -hmm. know, even if we had to do it remotely somewhat. There's so much music. He, he, he will like delete all. You know, there's things that are in the film. He's like, I don't want to put that in the soundtrack album. And I'm like, but they're all, they're amazing. You know, but the, he just doesn't feel they're good enough. You know, like, and so you know, he's just got a really selective ear as well, and like kind of you know, quality control, I guess, yeah. you know. For me as well, I'd like to do a piece where we'd be incorporate all the sound design too, you mm -hmm. know. But yeah, it's just one of those ongoing things. Um, but I hope no one ever steals my computer, I'm going to put it under lock and key, but I've got some amazing Johnny Green music never heard, you know. <laughs> did you temp score with it, or when you sent it to him, did it have anything on it, or no? I think at first we just done sound design, yeah. and then I tried things that I liked that I think had the right feel. Yeah. I don't just remember what it was, but it's probably it was moods rather, yeah. feel or sound, you know what I mean, rather than a, an actual yeah. thing. And was there a piece of his work that he'd done with, with score work that you'd heard, or was it the Radiohead thing, or was it a combination of the two that you knew and you felt like he was the right person? Uh, well, I think it was there where Will Be Blood, mm -hmm. I think, was out the opening. I was like, wow, you know, mm -hmm. then. And I just I felt it was like so in tune with the sound design. And then it was like, who are my favourite people? And 
as I said, it was those two, and yeah. like, you know, and um, I mean, Morvin Callery was a real trip because I like, you know, there were so many great like tracks in that, and I worked with Warp and that, you know, so I didn't really even respect uh, expected reaction. So, so to me, it was much more, you know, it didn't matter if people were in the room watching it that I really respected the fact that these, you know, and, and there were, there were, it was like, I was just so knocked out, I'll even get an email back from <laughs> Richard James or Johnny, or let alone watch the film and like it, and that made me feel a bit more confident in the film, in a way. You know? Amazing. We got our, our first clip from, from Kevin, which includes Johnny's score, and it's when Eva's kind of arriving at school. I'm going to make a light comedy next year. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, it's almost like a, it's like a ballet. It's like the kind yeah. of the, the crescendo yeah. in a ballet. There's so many subtleties in that 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 one scene of what he did when he comes out, and it's it's almost like a rock star coming on yeah. stage type thing. Yeah, yeah. So much in that short scene. What were the guess what were the discussions you had with Johnny about that particular piece? I think there was always I mean, always saw Kevin as a kind of perverse love story. You know what I mean? Um, and this is the, you know you can see how he looks at his mum and all that stuff. It's like a and I, there's even a line in, in the book where she says, "Why, you know?" And he says, "When you're putting on the show, you don't. Why don't you? Didn't you kill me?" You know. She, she says, um, "He says, um, when you're putting on a show, you don't kill the audience. So it's like it's all about getting her attention in some way. You know, like before this in the film, you've seen her. Own, she can only imagine what's happened. You know, but this is the the, the actual thing." That she saw that day, and that piece of music just was kind of like a eulogy or something, you know. So, yeah. and again, and that was for that scene, you know. Yeah. And we'd we'd sound design in that scene, but that just sort of lifted it, and I think it made them it sort of put the connection between those two more, you know. So that's that's kind of how we got to that. Because even the level of it, it feels like you held back on on kind of how loud you made the mm-hmm. the strings and stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, you could almost need to kind of really pay attention yeah, to yeah. hear it, so it's yeah. not overwhelming and it's not yeah. taken over. Really yeah, as well. yeah. so subtle, but yeah, it kind of builds that one. But you know, I think we have a piece of music like this, which is all almost like a classical score, and it's absolutely beautiful. Mm. When it's huge, it can really overtake things, and there was still this intimacy. I still wanted this kind of feeling between these two characters, so it really builds towards the end in a way, you know. So yeah, that was one of the, another jaw-dropping one that I was like, oh wow, you know, like um, Johnny's a genius.
The, the choices of contemporary music and Kevin, when you look at the titles of the tracks, a lot of the time they almost like give a little bit of comedic mm. relief in a way, whether mm. it's mm. Lonnie Donick and Nobody's Child, mm. um, there's or Last Christmas by Wham at the party scene, mm. it's just, mm. it just makes you laugh kind of thing when you hear them or you see them. Beach Boys track as well when she's snooping mm. around mm. his room and it's so clever. That's all deliberate, you're really thinking about it. My mum was a big Lonnie Donegan fan. I don't know why Lonnie Donegan songs. It's like three of his tracks in it. Don't you know? <laughs> I mean, I didn't know he was Scottish, you know. Lonnie, it must be. As I was slowly passing An orphan's home one day I stopped for a year to watch the children play alone a boy was standing and when I asked him why he turned with eyes that could not see he began to cry I'm nobody's child I'm nobody's child Just like a flower kind of evolution with every film, you know. Um, I, li I like using fine music a lot, you know. I remember I, I, when I first started making films that made my short film, Gas Man, I was like, I was really dogmatic, I'll never ever use score. Yeah, I, oh, I, that really? was, it was a real kind of, I don't know what the hell was going on, but but it was like, <laughs> I think a poor guy at film school scored small deaths and I was like, I hate it, you know, it's like, no, sorry. And, it, and he became one of the biggest composers in the world, you know, so. And then we meet, meet, uh, also in Ratcatcher, um, you know, I kept sort of removing parts of this, you know. Rachel Portman. Yeah, Rachel Portman, sorry, I was like, hey, Rachel Portman, sorry I didn't need to forget her there, I'm just like, I was just like thinking about what she did because I remember she was doing some really nice stuff and I was like, oh, it's too much, it's too much. And it got to the point I'd taken so many instruments away that she's like, do you really want a score? And I'm like, I don't know, you know? <laughs> so um, we ended up using this kind of like um, a teaching piano or something it's called. It's like you put linoleum inside the piano, you play it and it's never the same. It just became very much, much more simple, yeah. I guess.
But at one point I was going, I'm just going to use the whole lot of Nick Drake's intros for Ratcatcher all the way through. We were never able to get <laughs> I said, we just didn't have the money for that. So um, I remember in Gasman getting back to that, that I filmed it with the music and the editor saying, you're completely lunatic, you'll never be able to cut it, which I couldn't. You know, it was like the music was jumping all over the place. But I never would have got those performances from that, those kids like that if I didn't yeah. do that. You know, so somehow we made it work, but it was, you know, it was hard for mm -hmm. the sound and the editing. So I'm, I'm less that way now, but sometimes I love things that are just sounds as well, you know. And I, I think I, I don't cut to music at first. I'll cut to sound, you know, yeah. and then I see where, where that takes me, you know. The contemporary tracks and Kevin for watching it feel like it's mm. what Eva would listen to because mm, mm. a lot of the time you hear mm. contemporary tracks when she's driving, there's quite a few mm, tracks, mm, mm, so it's almost like what she'd have mm. on a cassette in the car or, or, yeah, or, on, get, the, or on the radio so. sort of thing as well. well. I know I listen to a lot of things are the things that you go back to are those things that like my mum and dad listen to weirdly yeah. or some of those tracks without being too ironic about it because yeah. like sometimes I don't you know I feel like oh we should have pulled back a bit there but it was um because I think you gravitate to the meaning of those tracks she does within her head I mean the one I like the best really is probably Buddy Holly in that it's almost like her, it's her psyche sometimes, mm -hmm. the lyrics almost of that track. Mm -hmm. It's brilliant. I, I guess it was mine projected <laughs> on it. There's something about that track, you know, it's like... I think it was a music teacher or a school teacher that did the piano on it. You know, it's got a real instrument, you know. Yeah. There's some history It's like a kid's music it, box, yeah, isn't it? That kind yeah. of twinkly bit of it. Um, and I think she just feels such a sense of threat by everything at this moment, that something so innocent can be sort of twisted and made something and it's into something different. It just seemed to work, you know. Yeah to be in her mind and also this was a crazy film you know you sometimes it was like it was good to make it to give something light but then I mean I, used to, I totally understand why she needs that drink at the end of it you know so um but but yeah like you know I've always loved that track I've always really loved it and I, and I think that it just stuck in my mind for this scene you still know? love it I do actually it's a beautiful it's an amazing track yeah. I think Buddy Holly's amazing yeah Every day it's a getting closer, going faster than a roller coaster. Love like yours will surely come my way. Hey, hey, hey. Every day it's a getting faster. Everyone said go ahead and ask her. Love like yours will surely come my way. Hey, hey, hey. Every day. Seems a little longer every way. Love's a little stronger, come what may. Do you ever long for true love from me? Every day it's a getting closer, going faster than a roller coaster. Love like yours will surely come my way. Hey, hey, hey. Love like yours will surely come my way. Reminds me of my dad, actually. He's always loved a bit yeah, of yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think a lot of those tracks I grew up listening yeah. to. You know, my mum and dad were really into music, you know. But really diverse music. Like, my dad liked Donna Summer sometimes, you know. Like, and, well, Donna Summer's cool, you know. Like, so, I Feel Love. And then, but between that and, like, Frank Snatcher, Elvis, you know, the more classic -y things, you know. So kind of maybe that stuff growing up, listening to it, and then applying it to these 
whatever yeah. I'm doing, you know what yeah. I mean? Like, it, there's sort of the, the, the tracks mean something in a different way, I guess, you know? It's lovely yeah. to hear that personal connection mm-hmm. with him. With Morvan Carla, I love I love mm-hmm. that film so much. I really mm-hmm. connected with it. Coming from a little fishing village, I kind of saw mm-hmm. a lot of me and that character, and it was so great to go and watch it again. And music's a really, music's a character in that film in terms mm-hmm. of, you know, mm-hmm. the the compilation tape and mm-hmm. and how how she's always got you know the way she's got it mm-hmm. strapped around her when she's preparing <laughs> for her holiday and all that kind of stuff it's just all little bits like that with it it's so important to that film was mm-hmm. did you start thinking about music really early on in that because it's in the film i guess you had to yeah i mean it was kind of strange when this one because um there was some really good music um, in the Alan Warner book, yeah. Plus the sound designer and I work with, he knows some really obscure stuff. I'm like, what the hell is that, you know? Um, <laughs> but it's great, you know, so, you know, he really introduced me to Khan and Holger Suki and, you know, um, and, and some, you know, such great, you know, tracks. But I knew this, uh, I had a friend of mine who was an artist um, and I met his assistant and his assistant and really had a cool taste in music, you know. Um, and I, I don't know, we just, we got talking and I said, do you want to do this thing? We don't, you know, he'd never done anything like it before. He's now a curator, he's in, uh, in an art gallery in Berlin and um, and he was totally poor. I, th- I think we bought him, I had to buy him shoes, you know, at some point because his sneakers had holes in them and I think the whole payment of the, for the film was a, was an Apple Mac that got stolen, you know, um, which was a shame, you know, but he just was like, this great taste of music and we were riffing on each other and just taking a chance and this kid, like, you know, like, helped me get these tracks together and it just worked and a lot of them we played on, you know, some great stuff in the book as well, I've got to say, you there's track lists in the book, but basically um, we were playing the tracks and she was listening to the tracks as we filmed, a lot of the time, you know, not everyone a track is in there. But I mean, people were giving us tracks for like four grand. I remember we got a bay track for 4,000 cooks I never used. Will you stay in a lover's story? If you stay, you won't be sorry Cos we believe in you Soon you'll grow, so take a chance With a couple of cooks hung up on romancing Will you stay in a lover's story? If you stay, you won't be sorry Cos we believe in you Soon you'll grow, so take a chance With a couple of cooks hung up on romancing Funnily enough, I love Lazarus and before you know, Bowie died, I kept playing it when I was writing You Were Never Really Here. So at one point I thought about that being a, a, a final track, you know. But obviously, you know, things had changed and maybe that's the meaning changes in yeah. and, and it's such a big thing, you know. So it, it was like a big borrow and steal. I think I went to an opposing company to try. We didn't have enough money for the Morphine Keller soundtrack and the BBC, I think, put money into it and I went to Film 4 and said, I'll, I'll do your, my next film if you give me a couple of thousand towards the music, you know, because this film's all about music. I mean, the thing that dates it is that it's a Walkman, you know, but somehow I always felt that film was a little bit ahead of its time when I did it. You know, people didn't know what to make of it. They were like, what is this weird road movie with these two girls? And, I, and, and so many actresses, I think, they, they all know this film, you know. 
and it's quite a special film to me because the, the, I co-wrote it um, I have co-written but you know I write myself as well and that, this was written with a fr- friend of mine from film school we used to call her the cat who walked by herself you know she was super independent we thought about the film as a western that you can never read Morvan's mind you're never going to you know mm-hmm. she's quite iconic and that friend like died quite young, you know what I mean? But the be such a hoot making this film, such a great time making this movie and because she was an animator and an animator is a filmmaker as well, um thinks in a very surreal way, you know. Mm-hmm. Like, so it was in super brilliant work with someone like that. Yeah. Um, and also Samantha Morton. I mean, Samantha's amazing, she gives you goosebumps every just time. Thinking about it, don't I know. <laughs> But um, it was, the, uh, the producer just, he kept looking at me like he was going to kill me. He was a really <laughs> nice guy, but I didn't know when he called cut. She was so in character. It was like she did something so brilliant mm-hmm. the next moment. You were like, been lucky enough to shoot a lot in film, but film stock's expensive, you know? And it's like, he's like, when are you going to cut? I could see him <laughs> jumping up and down. And I'm like, I was just watching her. So, so it was like, you know, it was a bit like Joaquin in that way where you can, you know, go straight and he's like, she kind of goes into her thing. And, and sometimes it was hard to cut with him too, you know yeah. what I mean? So they have similarities, I think, yeah. Oh, go and watch it again if you haven't seen it well because it was such a treat to sit and watch that oh, film yeah. again. I haven't watched it for 20 years. Probably. Really? I haven't watched it since I made it. Yeah. Oh, well, you should. It's really good. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you really should. No, that's funny because I was like, the AFI, like the American Film Institute, and recently they showed Ratcatcher and asked me to come along, and I hadn't seen that for 20 years either, 20 odd years, and I'm listening to it. Yeah, like I wouldn't have done that, but it was like, um, it was it was actually really special seeing that film after all that time, you yeah. know. And it's funny even seeing film stock, you're like, God, it's so much more grainy. I love Lovely. it. <laughs> <laughs> We've only got a couple of minutes left, but I just wanted to talk a little bit about Rat Catcher, if that's uh-huh. all right as well, because yeah. you mentioned Nick Drake and wanting to pepper the whole film with it. Got that mm. beautiful scene on the bus with James with mm. the cello song. Strange face with your eyes So pale and sincere Underneath, you know what? You have nothing Dreams that came to you when so young told of a life where spring is sprung. And I just feel like with Ratcatcher, it's just you just felt like you were watching these kind of kids live and experience and, and deal with situations and deal with what is thrown at them. Was was it easy to, to kind of navigate your way through that film with the sound for it and the music? God, that film is a nightmare. It was like... <laughs> Well, I loved making my shorts, but when I was making that, it was like I felt the crew was too big. I was moving the camera away. I felt I was like the whole film was written as a, this, a long hot summer, and it rained every day, like every <laughs> single day. To it never stopped raining. It was like, and I, I remember the insurance company coming down and like we were like, well, there's no weather cover or anything. But it was really sort of quite traumatic making it. But the great thing was these amazing kids, these amazing performances. It just kept me going, you know. Um, First feature is always a special thing. 
I've got a photo with, with all those kids, and I, it looks like a school photo. I mean, I look 18, even though there's older, you know. And I think it was a, it was like a little commune, and it'll always hold a place in my heart. And that's why I think I, I was reacting again with Rachel as well. Rachel Portman, I was I, I very much she she knew I had strong reactions if I didn't like something. You know, I'd be much more apt to subtract than add. You know, mm-hmm. and and so and then she would get somewhere. You know, um, but I'd never ever worked with a composer or anything like that. But I discovered Nick Drake, you know, before then. I loved his music and stuff, and I was like playing intros over everything, like I said before. So that 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 that, that became this scene, you know, the the scene in the bus, and um, we were able to get that, you know. I think I might have even put some money towards that just to get that track, yeah. I love the scene as well with the um, Karl Orff's gas in the house, gas in the house, is it called? Mouse's trip off up to, to space, that's hilarious. Well, that, that was, um, you know, Rachel did something similar, but like, and, and also that being in Badlands, that, that track. It was funny because I think I met a filmmaker who said, oh, you cannot use that. But at, at that point, I was just like, it works, I like it. I didn't think about Badlands or anything like that. It was so far away from how it was used there, you know? Um, that's always a good reason to use it when someone says you can't yeah, use it. Yeah, probably it. there was some reactionary, <laughs> you know, thing in that, you know, like you cannot do that and so I would yeah, I did but it just nothing ever really kind of fit as well you mm. know um, and it's really beautiful music you know so it had this kind of innocence to it and it fit with that and it fits so well and sometimes something just fits and you don't know why and, you can't, and every time you change it you can't find it again yeah, yeah. you know you can't find it again that's why people put temp things on and they go we'll change it later and we'll and then you get so something just happens to work and you can't find something anything better. So it's it's it's, it's a strange process that way, you know. And it's tricky that when someone at the end of it, there's money considerations, um, you get 50,000 less or something and you're so in love with this thing, you know, yeah. so it can be tough, but you find a way. You know. Lynn, thank you so much for your time <laughs> and congratulations on You're Never Really Here. Huge round of applause, please, for Lynn Lachlan. <laughs> Some velvet morning when I'm straight I'm gonna open up your gate 
From the wonderful supermarket scene in Moran Collar, that's Some Velvet Morning by Lee Hazelwood and Nancy Sinatra, rounding off this latest episode of Soundtracking with Lynn Ramsey in partnership with the EE BAFTAs. My huge thanks to Lynn for joining us at Soundtracking Live at the Glasgow Film Festival. You Were Never Really Here is on a general release around the world now with Johnny Greenwood's excellent score, available via our very good friends at Invader and Lakeshore Records. There's a full track list for the show at edithbowman.com featuring the tracks we played in the order they appear. My website is also the place to subscribe to this podcast and catch up with all of our previous interviews. Please do follow us on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. We are at Soundtracking UK and please do keep spreading the word. Next week, we have a rather interesting combination of the director and composer for the brand new rebooted Tomb Raider, Roar of Tag and Junkie XL, real name Tom Holkenberg. I very much look forward to the pleasure of your company then. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. Get ahead of the postage rate increases this year with Stamps.com. It's like your own personal post office. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM.